Okay, the Dharma rain is falling on us, isn't it? <clears throat> Today, beautiful day. And my gratitude to you for showing up on this day. <clears throat> um, I was considering what it really meant to show up because I often thank you for showing up and I was considering what this showing up amounts to. And if you were preparing a wonderful meal for someone and they kind of blew it off <laughs> or they, they just didn't feel like arriving, um, just maybe assuming that it was okay. You could eat, eat the food yourself. Or maybe you invited somebody else and they would show up. And it really wasn't important for them to show up. So you'd be sitting there alone eating, eating your meal, which was, would be okay, I suppose. But you had invited someone else to join you. Or someone said to you, I'll be with you in spirit. <laughs> and that seems a really wonderful gesture. I'll be with you in spirit, but I'm sleeping through the meal. <laughs> and so you're sitting at the table with someone there in spirit. <laughs> you're eating your meal with somebody who's there with you in spirit. Not quite the same. Or we tried this with I did try this with my daughter during Thanksgiving one year. We'll share the meal on Zoom. <laughs> so I'm sitting at the table with my computer, and there she is eating the meal with me on Zoom. Somehow that was a very different experience than actually having people at your table. So here you are. You've shown up body, mind, spirit. This body, we often say, you know, if you're really committed to something, will you put your body on the line? Will you show up fully? And so I thank you in this sense that you're not showing up in spirit, you're not showing up while you're sleeping in bed thinking other people will show up at Oan, or you're not, you're not just listening to the Dharma talk on Zoom at some point or online, but you're here. So I'm truly grateful for your showing up in the way that we can share this meal, this nurturing, wonderful meal of practice together. It'd be fine if Taishan and I, or just I, were sitting here. Um, we'd practice, but it's not the same as sharing the meal with, with all of you at, at this wonderful table. So, again, thank you. Those of you who may have seen the announcement for this week, 
may have noticed that I'm not Daigon, <laughs> who was, uh, he, he has not shown up for the meal. <laughs> but he is, he's not feeling well. So, really good excuse um, uh, for not showing up. So he, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll take on offering the talk for you. And I did uh, asked him what he was going to talk about, and he mentioned this particular line in the poem, uh, which is, bind grasses to build a hut and don't give up. And I, of course, want to leave his take on this and his way of, of addressing this line to him, but I thought I would take a shot at at this uh, this particular line myself and what it might mean for me. <clears throat> and I'm focusing on the phrase, don't give up. Don't give up. We are all always building huts for ourselves, structures, cells, uh, that we live in. And we are considering our practice and our way of being in the world as the hut that we've built. It's simple. It's a simple structure. Um, and our, our, the injunction here is if you build this hut, live in it, Learn how to live in it. There is a philosopher that I'm very fond of who spoke about religion and spiritual life. Uh, he was particularly talking about Christianity. And he said that most people who, who are Christians, he put it this way, they build castles in the air and they live in shacks down the street. So there is a way of understanding what life could be, maybe you should be, and in its deepest sense, must be. And that's a kind of idealism. It's this this is the hut that I'm building. I have this Zen practice, or I'm a Christian, and I live by the commandments, or I live by the, the teachings of Christ. But my real life is very different from that. That I don't live in the, I don't live in the castle that I've built in my mind, or in maybe once a week at church. When I leave the church, when I leave the ideal castle, I go back into my shack, which is very different from what I've built up in terms of my ideal life. Well, I've thought about this, and in a way, our practice is a kind of in inverse of that, although not totally uh, contradictory to it. But we could say that we build a hut in the woods 
not a castle, a hut, a humble, simple life. So we build a hut in the woods, but we live in a McMansion on the street. So we live in a, what I'm going to talk about today as, you could say, a culture of institutionalized greed. McMansions, stuff, accumulation. So the phrase, don't give up, is particularly appropriate in this season. I want to draw our attention to this particular holiday season. It's really hard to live in the hut during the Christmas season. It is generally in a capitalist culture because greed is the uh, greed is the guiding principle of capitalism, profit, more and more and more and never enough. So that is fundamentally uh, greed and it's institutionalized in our culture. So not giving up is about how can I stay in the hut? How can I live in my hut? when that hut is right in the middle of all these castles, in all this culture of accumulation, of wanting more, of wanting better, of wanting the newest. How do I maintain and not give up my place in this hut, living by the values of our practice? So this season really takes advantage of our sense of, in in Buddhist practice, this sense of lack, that there's something missing. Um, I need more. I need different. There's something, something missing that I have to grab onto. As Buddhists, we understand this lack, this something missing, as a self. That's what we are really missing. We understand and we know deep down that there is no self. I mean... When you see things disappearing and passing away and like one minute this animal is here and the next minute the animal's not here or a loved one is here for one moment and then the next they're dead. Um, This kind of brings home the sense of who are we? This impermanence is rooted fundamentally in the fact that we don't exist as a separate, substantive, permanent being. 
And that's, that's the fundamental lack that we have inside of us. But that is so uncomfortable to face that, that we project it out onto the world and think, no, it's, it's not a fundamental discomfort and groundlessness in ourselves. No, it's something out there that if we had enough of that, that would fill us. That, that would make us feel like we're, we're real, like we have substance, the more stuff you know, that we can surround ourselves with. And of course, our culture pushes it, pushes it. And we're all victims of it. We're all hostages of it, including me. I just bought my cell phone. 12 pencils that I didn't need. <laughs> These elegant pencils, right? <laughs> that were advertised on wire cutter. You know, these really elegant pencils. You know, as soon as I saw the pencils, I said, I don't need these, but I want them. And I got them. And I got, I gave one to Taishin, only one. I mean, really, it's all over the place that if only I had this, then I, I would feel real. And of course, in not only stuff, but because we live in this particular culture, we tend to think that we don't have enough money. So money, I've always been fascinated by money. Um, because what is, what is money? It's, it's just this piece of paper, right? You can't write on it, you, know, you can't... You can't eat it. I mean, it's pretty useless, um, right? But it is so incredibly valuable. And we often think that what's lacking in my life, I don't have enough money. And of course, money is a, is a medium through which we can get stuff, which then also you know, makes us feel, okay, we're filling up this lack. But, of course, it's never enough. Like Donald Trump once said, someone asked him, when will enough be? When will you have enough? And he said, enough isn't in my vocabulary. And I suspect that there's something in us that's pretty close to that because we're always kind of reaching for the next thing, the next best thing that may make us feel real. And so money is not just a way of gaining stuff, but it actually is, is itself, when it becomes capital, you know, when it feeds itself, that's what capitalism is, you know, not only do you buy stuff, but you invest so you get more capital, more money. So money breeds money. It, it, we, we no longer think of it as, as, as necessarily buying stuff. I get very dramatic. <laughs> but 
but in, in just accumulating it for its own sake, just to have more money. And, and that money gives us respect. It gives us a sense that we're important. And I can remember, I remember my dad, who was, um, he was a cab driver. I, we, I came from a very poor family. And whenever we had the privilege of going out to eat, he would make it a point to collect as many dollar bills as he could in a wad in his pocket. And when we entered the restaurant and he was about to pay for the meal, he would take out this big wad of dollar bills, making believe he had this incredible wealth. And we know that if somebody drove up here in a Jaguar, we'd pay attention, right? I mean, I know I would. Thank you, Christine. Didn't have to do that. We're, we're okay. Thank you. So we know that we regard people differently when we know they're wealthy. And I think we have to admit that. Um, we, we give them a greater reality than someone who is homeless or impoverished. So money is, uh, money is something that uh, we're greedy for, but we mistake. We mistake the lack that's in here for something outside. And that's why we can never have enough because we're looking for it in the wrong place. We're looking for our lack out there where the lack is really in here. And our practice helps us to discover that so that we're not always greedy, always wanting more because we know it's not out there, it's in here. So I, some one of the things I enjoy doing during the Christmas season is looking up this catalog. It's Hamaker Schlemmer. Has anybody heard of this mm -hmm. catalog? Mm -hmm. And it's the sort of um, epitome <laughs> of appeal to greed and to appeal to uh, some sort of status if you have a lot of money and you can spend this money on these outrageous gifts. Well, here are some of the things that you can buy from Hamacher Schlemmer. You can buy, for only $16,000, you can buy the Productivity Boosting Nap Pod. <laughs> The Productivity Boosting Nap Pod. <laughs> or, listen to this. These are, these are real. I'm not making these up. You can buy the Levitating Picture Frame. <laughs> Levita levitating Picture Frame. What, what, is, what is that? 
And do you need a levitating picture frame? You might want it, you know, to show to your show to your neighbors. A remote controlled tarantula. What? Real, real things. A genuine stingray wallet made out of stingray. And for $11,500, you can have a life-size Tyrannosaurus skull. Life-size. Where do you put this? In, on your lawn. Lawn ornament. Pretty impressive. Or if you're making Christmas dinner, you can, you can invest in a tabletop cotton candy maker. All the kids in your neighborhood will really find you the person to visit. And then finally, and this is not the end of the list, but you can buy a human bowling ball. And they have pictures for all of these. It is really fun to examine this catalog. Every, there's nothing, nothing in it that's less than $5,000. This is our culture, right? I definitely don't need that. But I want that. The odd thing, one of the oddest things, is that one of the things that appears in the catalog is, believe it or not, it's called the Wordsmith's Manual Typewriter. This is the manual typewriter that recalls the thoughtful, well-written correspondence of yesteryear. Devoid of technological crutches, such as spell check and deletion, each of its 44 keys requires a firm, purposeful stroke for a steady click-clacking cadence that encourages the patient considered sentiment of a wordsmith who thinks before writing. Using a 10 characters per inch Pika 87 font, it faithfully reproduces the eclectic printed impressions of its forebears. Variable kerning, subtly ghosted letters, and nuanced baseline shifts imparting unique personal character to every letter, piece of prose or verse of poetry, etc., etc. In other words, this is the newest thing, a manual typewriter. Which just goes to show you that what we want has nothing to do with the object. We don't want the thing. We want 
to be filled up with what the newest, best, most fashionable thing is. We want to feel real because we're part of the culture. We, we want to be up, you know, we want to have that Apple Watch. Because it makes us feel like we're part of things, like, you know, we're... It doesn't really help. <coughs> Bless you. And so it's pretty clear that what we're seeking has nothing to do with the stuff. But we, we fail to recognize that. Because that hole, that lack in our being, can never be filled and we are totally mistaken as to what it is that we're really seeking. So our, our practice is a way for us not only to discover the reality of what we're really missing, but also to help us be comfortable with that and not keep reaching out for something that just doesn't satisfy. We would have to sit with this insecurity, this fundamental insecurity that we are a groundless being. We have no permanence, no matter how much stuff we have, we're still gonna die. We're still going to be basically ungrounded, insecure, empty of separateness. And that feels, even when we're practicing, when we get in touch, when you're on the cushion, and you get in touch with that sense of, ooh, this is, who am I? Then you start to fill up with fantasies, with plans, with worries, with thoughts. We cannot stand that sense of being empty, being basically open, empty, ungrounded, insecure individuals. And so even on our cushions, we're filling we're filling, we're filling that, that feeling of who am I? I'm basically just an open vessel with no permanence, with no substance. Sometimes we, we talk you know, about when someone who has stuff or has a lot of money, we say, this is a person of substance. That's ridiculous. There's no substance to us. And we discover that on our cushion and we're uncomfortable. Just look, look around, distractions. But if we can find a way to live in this hut of emptiness and not give up Stay put. Allow ourselves to be uncomfortable, to be insecure. We might discover 
some profound sense of liberation in that. Because that's what our path is. It's the path of liberation. When we attach, when we are constantly grasping, trying to fill this emptiness that cannot be filled by anything external, we are hostage. We are not free. We are not liberated. We are imprisoned in this grasping culture, in this more, not enough, bigger, better. However, the opposite is, is also to be considered dangerous. Sometimes in, when we see how imprisoned we are by all this stuff and all this advertising and all this brainwashing that is done to us by our culture, then we say, I'm getting rid of everything. <laughs> and we go to the opposite extreme. I'm kind of trying to do that myself. you know, uh, Just downsize, but outsize. Just get rid of it all. Go, just get rid of it all. Because when I go on retreat, for example, I know I'm in one room. I don't have a computer. I don't have anything. I live, I can live for a month, two months, three months without this. And so the, uh, the thought is just get rid of it all. Just, well, Buddha found that that wasn't the way either. Remember, he almost died, he became an ascetic. Just like nothing. I'm, I'm only going to have one, one grain of rice a day. Well, that's, you know, he discovered that's not the way either. So this attitude of all or nothing, like I'm not going to buy anything anymore. <laughs> I'm not going to be captive. No. So there's a way of living with things, with stuff, without being greedy without attaching. And there's also a way of letting things go without this aversion. You know, I don't want anything. I, I like beautiful things, right, Michelle? I like, I like to go thrift shopping. <laughs> and I like to find wonderful things. But, again, not thinking that that's going to make me feel better and also being able to put them up for silent auction and say, okay. I got them all. Hmm? I got them all. <laughs> yeah, got them all. <laughs> Yesterday, Kelly, uh, Kelly Asbury came over and, and she bought these Buddha earrings that I treasured, you know. <laughs> but and she had, it was beautiful on her. She put them on and, um, you know. So there's the just right it's, it's not all or nothing. And that's maybe even harder, <laughs> harder to do than just like, you know, all you can eat salad bar, you know, just like everything I can possibly stuff into myself or my life. Or I'm just nothing. I'm just going to be like, uh, you know, I'm going to be like a monk, 
or Manon. I'm just going to have nothing, nothing luxurious, nothing to pleasure. No, no elegant pencils for me. <laughs> you know. Yes, I can. I can buy those elegant pencils and enjoy those elegant pencils and give, give some away without feeling this is going to make me feel real. So that's our practice. It's, if, it's this middle way. Not just half and half, but what's just right here? Can I hold, can I, can I, um, can I not give up? Always trying to have a full, rich life without being, with, with, with this feeling of liberation, that I'm not stuck in either accumulation and greed or asceticism. That I can have a Christmas, I can do, I can participate in the season, but not quite in the Hamakashlemmer <laughs> way. <laughs> Uh, that nor in the way in which I don't recognize that my culture is celebrating solstice or some some you know the birth of a a great teacher um, so i can I can do this, but in a liberated way, and that is that is our practice. <laughs>